Luke chapter 20, starting with verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Please follow along as I read these verses. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother's brother dies, having a wife but no children the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection of the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Father, we ask that as we come into this text this morning, that you would help us, help us receive your word today. I pray that you would help me preach it, that I would expose your truth this morning. Help the congregation as they receive it. Open our hearts. Do a work in us. May we experience Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I want to...
tag my sermon this morning, Jesus triumphs and so do we. Jesus triumphs and so do we. Last year, we were at the denomination's uh, annual meeting, and I was jumping out of the car with Angelo and Rob. Uh, We were heading to an early breakfast gathering. So we jump out of the car, and, and immediately we see this big crowd of people at the convention center in Birmingham. And we just assume that the crowd of people is the crowd that we want to be in. They're all moving in a certain direction. So instead of looking at the signs or carefully inspecting the email confirmation that we received for our breakfast gathering, we jumped into the crowd of people and followed along. It's amazing how mindless we can be when we're with a crowd of people moving in a certain direction. We just simply assume the crowd knows where we're going. We assume that the crowd knows where we're supposed to be. We assume whatever seems to be the most popular option is the option that we are looking for. Well, we ended up at the wrong destination. We stood outside the doors. Finally, the doors opened up. Everybody pulls out their tickets, and we don't have a ticket for this event. We somehow made it through the doors anyway, and it wasn't until Angelo had a full plate of food that we realized that we were in the wrong location. The right destination was a place uh, uh, that was uh, very narrow doors, where few entered, literally speaking. My point is pretty simple for you this morning, and that is what's popular is not always leading us to the right destination. The popular authorities of the day do not necessarily lead you to the right destination. It's just that simple. And that's actually what we have in common with the original readers of this text. The popular authorities of their day, while they have massive crowds that are following them, are not necessarily leading them to the right destination. And so then, therefore, Jesus says in verse 46, beware, beware of the scribes. That doesn't shock you, but it would have shocked his original readers. Beware of the scribes. Why? Number one, they like to walk around in long robes. They like to show off their religiosity. They like to look devout, even though they're not devout. Number two, they love greetings in the marketplace. They, they want to be known. They want to be famous. They want people to recognize their face. Number three, they love the best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at the feast. They want to be seen as important. Number four, they devour widows' houses. Scholars are unsure exactly what this means. It could have meant any number of things, but most likely what it means is similar to what we might see with prosperity preachers today who take advantage of the poor and promise God's blessing if they give large sums of money to their ministry. They're considered thieves. Number five, for a pretense, they pray long prayers. Let's keep that in mind as we gather for our prayer service this evening at 5 p.m. 
don't think just because somebody prays a long prayer that they are spiritual. It doesn't mean that you can't ever pray a long prayer. But they love to pray the long prayers for the wrong reason. It's a lot of fluff. They're saying a lot of nothing. They just want to sound religious. They want to be heard. Their destination is a destination that you don't want. Look at verse 47. They will receive greater condemnation. This morning, we're going to watch as these religious leaders try to discredit Jesus, but Jesus discredits them. They try to expose Jesus as a fraud, but Jesus exposes them as a fraud. They try to warn people to not follow Jesus, but Jesus warns people to not follow them. They try to show Jesus is the core problem, but Jesus displays their core problem, and that problem is pride. What's wrong with humanity? You ever just look at the news and ask yourself that question? What is wrong with humanity? I was on Instagram this morning. That's a good place to ask that question. Look, I saw that one of our city's boxers, I won't say his name, but there's only one <laughs> that's famous at least, put his hands on a, on, a, on a woman in front of a whole crowd of people, picks her up by her shirt, throws her out, and that's crazy. What's crazier on Instagram are the comments that you see. Dude saying, well, they don't know Baltimore women. You got to put them in their place. I'm serious. Um, well, he, he didn't really put his hands on her neck. It was just her shirt. Like all this defense... For abusing a woman in public. Church, what's wrong with humanity? What is wrong? What is wrong with our society that we think it's okay to abuse a woman? We're going to defend an abuser. What's wrong with our society? We, 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 we've got murders all around us in the city. There's, there's nothing for kids. Uh, threats. In, in the world of nuclear war, what is wrong with the world that we live in? What is the core problem of humanity? Well, we've been trying as a human race to answer that problem, or answer that question, rather. And so it was once believed that the problem with authority was, or I'm sorry, the problem with humanity was that we didn't have a centralized authority, that we didn't know each other, that we weren't united. And so therefore we have these experiments such as the United States or the United Nations. But things have continued to spiral into wars, bigger and badder. And so today, then, we have thrown off this idea of a common authority, and we believe that the answer is in every single human being becoming their own authority. Yeah. Just know who you are. 
Understand your personal identity. Throw off authority. Be your own authority. Embrace every feeling that you have. Embrace every desire that you have. Embrace whatever sex drive you have. Embrace your body as it is. Just all of these embrace yourself. What has it produced? Has it produced peace? No, it's produced a self-consumed, self-promoting, self-absorbed society. We're not for others, but we are for ourselves. On social media, we might have the appearance of joy, but the suicide rate skyrockets. It looks like we have friendship and community, but the reality is is that loneliness is a significant problem for a, a whole lot of young adults. We, we appear to be concerned for uh, the oppressed, but that is merely a facade. As there is one scandal after another. Those who are supposed to be leading us, business people or politicians or others who are involved in sex trafficking, hiding things, using their power to manipulate others. We can talk about murders, but we're not going to deal with that as long as we are all our own authority hating other people. We can talk about doing something for the kids while we ignore our own kids. My, my point is, is simply this. We need a better authority. A better authority than the authorities that the world gives us and certainly a better authority than the authority I give myself. Here's the point of my sermon. If you want to write it down, and then you can just log it into your memory and you'll be good to go. And that is this. Any authority that rejects Jesus is to be rejected. Somebody wasn't happy with that. (laughs) And I could actually go to kind of part B of that, and that is this. Your own desires, feelings, sense of identity is a terrible authority. Because it will not, in and of itself, lead you to Jesus. So we see in the text a clash of authority. Let's take a look at the clash for a moment. First, what we see is that the scribes and the chief priests attempt to discredit Jesus. In verse 19, it says that the scribes want to put their hands on Jesus, but they can't. So in verse 20, they get others to do their dirty work. They get some spies to go in and ask Jesus some questions. And they actually come up with a very brilliant plan. If they could get Jesus to say something that would indict him in front of Rome, now Rome is going to be the bad guy that puts Jesus to death and they'll be off the hook. It's a brilliant plan. They come with this question. They think they're going to corner him. They think it's a lose-lose. They say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now you've got to understand, Caesar, the Roman Empire, required large taxes of the people. Not to mention they were a unwelcome occupying force. 
requiring taxes of God's people. You can see the dilemma. If Jesus says, yes, it's right to pay taxes, then it's, it's almost as if he's saying loyalty to Caesar is more important than, important than loyalty to God. Because we're to give God our allegiance, not Rome. But if Jesus says, no, or yes, you should pay taxes, then what he's saying there, no, wait, what, what, uh, I'm, I'm confused myself. Aren't you glad that Jesus is really your teacher, not me? <laughs> if Jesus says, uh, no, you should not pay taxes, well, now he's in trouble with the Roman Empire and can easily be accused of rebellion. Well, Jesus answers them in this famous way. You've probably heard this story before. He says, let me see a coin. He looks at it. He says, whose, whose inscription is on the coin? Whose face do you see? It's Caesar's. And then he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Meaning if you live in the Roman Empire and you, you benefit from some of the things that the Roman Empire gives you, then it's right to pay taxes. It's just money. If Caesar wants cash, give him cash. But then he goes on to say, give to God what is God's. Who is made in the image of God? Who's, whose image do we have stamped on us? What he's, what he's saying is, it's a brilliant answer. He's saying, God demands all loyalty and all honor. Everything is God's. But Caesar has this little domain under God. Go ahead and give to Caesar his taxes. It's brilliant. Well, after the scribes and, and the chief priests, immediately the Sadducees come along. Everybody say Sadducees. The Sadducees were a class of religious leaders that did not believe in the resurrection. So they would have distanced themselves from the Pharisees, from the scribes, from the chief priests, from the elders of Israel who all believed in the resurrection. And the Sadducees basically said, nah, the material is all that we have and there is no life after death. The Sadducees now also come to try and discredit Jesus. You see what's going on here in Luke? Everybody's trying to discredit Jesus. Every single class of leadership. Well, they come along and they have this resurrection dilemma. It probably was a popular debate topic. And this is probably a, 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 a popular problem that they would put out there to prove that the resurrection is impossible. So they said, uh, according to Deuteronomy 25, 5, there is this law which, which says if you're married, uh, or if your brother is married, say, and your brother dies without any kids, and you're unmarried, then you're required to take your brother's wife and have kids in honor of your brother. That's, that's, that's the law there. So they, they bring this forward and they say, suppose there's a man who's married, doesn't have kids, he dies, the brother then takes his widow, makes the, his widow his wife, he dies, there's seven brothers, she kind of goes right down the line, she's married to all seven of them, she's a widow times seven, like she had a rough life, all right? None of them uh, survived, and now she eventually dies herself. She gets to heaven. Ah, here's the question. 
who's she married to in heaven? You see, this is, they think they got him. Was she married to all seven of them, Jesus? Is that what's going on in heaven? Because that can't be. So Jesus basically says, uh, there's no marriage in heaven. What? <laughs> like they had to be so, like so anticlimactic. You know what I mean? Like we thought we had them. And he just comes at us with that response. Verse 37, he then turns the table. He says there's no marriage in heaven. We're, in heaven, it's not like here. Like, he, we have marriage here for the propagation of the human race. In heaven, you're similar to the angels in that there is no propagation of the angels. Therefore, there is no need for, for marriage. We, we live forever. That's his point. Now, there's some mystery to this, and we're not trying to figure it out this morning. But then he turns the tables on them in verse 37, and he says, let's talk about the resurrection for a moment. And he quotes Moses. Moses said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Pop quiz, students. Was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive or dead by the time of Moses? They were dead. They were dead. And so Jesus says, Moses said, which by the way, he's, he, he's quoting the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which the Sadducees believed in. He could have gone elsewhere, but he's brilliant. Moses said that, that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, next question, is God the God of the living or the God of the dead? Answer, he's the God of the living. Well, wait a second. How can he say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are dead if God is the God of the living? You see his logic? Therefore, in order for that to be true, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be alive. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, Luke's intent with showing us this is not just simply to give us some doctrine on paying taxes. It's not just simply to teach us something about the resurrection, as important as those conversations are, and we can go to these passages for that information. But Luke's primary intent is something a little broader than that, and that is this. He wants us to see that Jesus triumphed over every class of authority in his day. That nobody could trip him up. Nobody could bring any accusation against him. Nobody could cause him to sin. It also answers a, a, a problem for the original reader, we got to remember Luke was written about 30 to 40 years after the death of Jesus. Sometimes we forget that. We forget that Luke was writing to certain people. He had people in mind as he's writing down these stories. One of the questions they would have had 30 to 40 years later is this. How is it possible that all of the, the, the leadership of Israel could deny the Messiahship of Jesus Christ? 
If the, the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, if they all denied Jesus Christ, there could be some confusion. For me, for us, are we right? Are, are we following the right authority? When all of the popular authorities of our day deny him, Luke is writing to show not only that they denied him, but that Jesus triumphed over them. He's writing to show that every single, I mean, you could look back in the last couple chapters, this is what we've been covering here, every single class of authority has come against Jesus, and Jesus has proven to be triumphant. He has proven to be smarter, wiser, better with the Bible, a better teacher than all of the authorities in his day. Luke wants us to ask this question, who is Jesus? Who is this authority? Who is the one that triumphed? And the answer is, is, is this. It's not the popular authorities of the day. Remember my point from my sermon. Number one, if any authority does not lead you to Jesus, it must be rejected. And church, my sub-point to that is this. The popular authority of our day, a.k.a. your desires, your identity, your ego, your ideas, the popular authority of our day is a pretty poor authority. Why is that? Let me show you why Jesus is a better authority. Number one, number one, Jesus speaks truth. He speaks truth. And the popular authorities of our day do not. There's an old parable where the devil is walking down the street and he has an assistant with him and, and a man right in front of the devil uh, picks, bends down and he picks up a piece of truth. And the assistant says to the devil, aren't you concerned that he just picked up a piece of truth? And the devil says to his assistant, no, not at all. I will just help him make a religion out of it. You know, the tricky thing about false religions, the tricky thing about false authorities is that they, they take a piece of truth. They say enough truth to, to kind of pull you in. It sounds good. Well, that sounds like the Bible. That's, that's, that's true. How much arsenic does it take in a tall glass of water to kill a man? Just a couple drops. I looked it up, actually. <laughs> An eighth of a teaspoon. Just a, uh, just, a, just, just a couple drops. You wondering why I looked it up? <laughs> Yay, watch. When you come over to my house, I pour you some water. You can't even smell it. Just a couple drops. How much arsenic in our truth does it take to lead us to a completely wrong destination? This is what the devil's been doing since day one. How did he deceive Adam and Eve? He used some truth. He affirmed the deity of this being. 
He said, did God not tell you? God did tell them something, didn't he? He told them something about trees. But he twisted the truth. He said, did God not tell you that you must not eat from any tree? That's not the whole truth, is it? God said, don't eat from this tree. But Satan has been twisting God's truth from the beginning. I don't know about your mama, but my mother taught me that a half-truth is a total lie. Compared to the authorities of our day, look, look at Jesus. He speaks the truth. I want, I want you to even see, this is amazing to me, in verse 21, look what his opponents say about his teaching. They say, you teach rightly. That's the word orthos. It's where we get the, the word orthodox. It means straight. They're saying, you give it to us straight. There's no confusion in, our, in your teaching. You don't mix it with anything. You don't try to, you don't try to, try to soften it. You're a straight shooter, Jesus. Number two, you show no partiality. A.K.A. he is an equal offender of all people. <laughs> Number three, you show the way of God truly. You rightly lead us to the destination of God. Isn't it amazing that even his opponents recognize that he speaks truth? I don't think they fully recognize what they were saying. But we can say amen to every single thing they say in verse 21 because Jesus speaks truth. Look at verse 39. Remember the scribes just tried to trip Jesus up. The Sadducees come along. The Sadducees disagree with the scribes on the topic of resurrection. Jesus blows the Sadducees out of the water and presents a powerful case for the resurrection. And in verse 39, some of the scribes say, Teacher, you have spoken well. It's almost as if they can't contain themselves. Like their other scribe friends are looking at them like, Did you just seriously compliment him? <laughs> they just shouted, Amen. Because when you get around Jesus, you realize it's pure and unadulterated truth. How different that is from the false authorities of our day. They'll speak about some truth, but not the whole truth. Love without judgment. Or they'll speak about judgment without love. Forgiveness without justice. Or justice without forgiveness. They'll talk to you about salvation, but no cross. Just think about your own ego. Uh, back when I was in, I don't know, my late 20s, I guess, I was going through a significant time of discouragement and depression, and a mentor, a friend of mine, told me that my problem is that my ego is my boss. And he said, the problem with your ego is it never speaks truth, not the full truth. Can you trust your ego? Can you trust it to lead you in the right direction? Can you trust your desires to lead you to God? Can you trust your, your, your impulsives, your, your motivations, your own sense of self-worth, 
your own sense of identity to lead you straight to the, right, to the way of God? There's some truth in that, but it only takes a couple drops of arsenic to kill you. Jesus is our authority because he speaks truth. Let me ask you a couple questions. What authorities do you have in your life outside of Jesus? And what lies do they tell you? What lies do the authorities of our day tell us? Uh, I think of the kids in our church and their friends. I read an article recently about how friends have a more powerful motivating factor on the development of youth than anybody else. That's, that's a little scary. So, kids, who are your friends? What kind of lies might friends lead children to believe? And that doesn't change with youth. Often as adults, we're, we're no different. Those that we respect, those that we look to, those that we look up to, whether we know them personally or whether they're a celebrity or in the media or music or entertainment. Who are your authority figures? And what lies do they teach you? Listen, Jesus is a straight shooter. We receive his truth in his word. This is why we sing songs filled with God's word. Because they take us to Jesus. We meet Jesus in his truth through his preached word through your daily devotions, opening the Bible, through praying the Word together and individually. We find Him as our authority as we meet Him in His truth. Number two, He speaks authority. Number two, He silences His opponent. He silences the opponent. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Come on, somebody. That's not true, is it? It's not true. I remember I was getting in a fight with my neighbor growing up, and uh, they were kind of, I don't know, 30, 40 feet away, and I was literally hurling insults at them. And they said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And then I said... Well, then here come the words. If they ain't going to hurt you. And I tried to insult them even more. And I just remember thinking, that's so stupid. Like, I can really hurt you with my words. I think I actually picked up some sticks and stones as well. (laughs) It's not true, is it? Words do hurt. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I think of the story of Job in the Bible. Job has all of the problems of the world like kind of crash down on him. He loses his family. He loses his beautiful kids. He loses his house. He loses his business. He loses his health. He loses everything in the very first chapter. And then it gets worse. You know how it's worse? The rest of it, you know what it is? What is it? Friends doing what? Using... words (laughs) words of accusation 
What is Satan called in the Bible? He's called the accuser. I don't know any accuser that doesn't use words. Job's friends accuse him. Oh, you must be going through all of this because you are not an innocent man. You've done something wrong. You've done something to make God angry. This is Satan's tactic. Satan uses even our friends at times, intentionally or unintentionally, to speak words of accusation against us. We could all, this is where we've got to be humble, we, we could all be used by the devil to bring accusation, intentionally or unintentionally, on those that we love the most. Throughout the Bible, there is this theme, God silence my enemy. Why would they need to be silenced? They would need to be silenced because words actually do hurt us. Because the enemy brings accusations against us verbally through the means of a human being. What's happening here in this text? Words. Jesus is being attacked. There are those opponents, enemies of Jesus, that are coming against him and they're trying to bring accusations against him. Psalm 143. Silence. My enemies, the psalmist cries. That prayer finds its amen right here. As Jesus' enemies come to discredit him in verse 26, what happens? It says, they became silent. In verse 40, it says, they no longer dared ask him any questions. He said, shut up. We're going to come back to that, but before we do, I've got to show you one more thing. Jesus says that he has all authority. It's where he goes immediately next. It's like the nail in the coffin. Did you know that old wooden coffins, they would literally nail them to the ground before they buried them? And so that last nail means... You're done. <laughs> Here comes the dirt. All right, this is the nail in the coffin for the Pharisees, for the Sadducees, for the scribes, for the elders, for the chief priests. Verse 41, he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Verse 44, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What's Jesus saying there? The, the religious leaders would have agreed that the Messiah who is to come, who Jesus claims to be, is in fact the son of David. What Jesus is saying is, is that the Messiah, the Christ, is not, is not simply the son of David. But the Messiah is, in fact, the Lord of David. He's saying he's not just simply the second David. Are you tracking with me? But the Messiah is the Lord of David. He's not just simply another teacher, but the Messiah is the teacher. He's not just simply another prophet, but he is the Lord of prophets. He's not just simply a king 
or another king in the line of David, but he is the king of kings. He's not just simply an authority, but he is the authority. What, what Jesus is saying is this, is that David bows to him. David calls Jesus Lord. And if David bows to him, then all, all of these religious leaders, all of these false authorities are wrong. Because they do not lead you to Jesus. And so he signals the warning, verse 46, beware. He's saying these authorities are not worth following. They're just not worth it. If any authority does not lead you to Jesus, that authority must be what, church? Rejected. Your own ideas, your own desires, and your sense of identity become, therefore, a terrible authority. Why? Because, number one, they don't speak truth. Number two, they don't silence the opponent. As a matter of fact, they become your opponent, bringing accusations against you. And number three, they are not Lord. Listen, when, when we become our own authority, when our ego is our own authority, when our sense of desire and lust and, and, and uh, ideas and identity become our own authority, we live in a perpetual sense of condemnation because we can never please our authority. We sang this song this morning, In the Midst of Persecution, Stand By Me. In the midst of persecution, stand by me. When my foes in battle array undertake to stop my way, those who saved Paul and Silas stand by me. Church, let me ask you this question. Who is worth following? Who is worth following? Who's going to stand by you? Who's going to stand by you when the earthly authorities condemn you? Who's going to stand by you when the earthly authorities fail you? The facts in this moment didn't look good for Jesus. What were the facts? What were the facts of this week? Let's think about the facts. The facts were the world is against him. The facts were he's about to die. They're plotting his death. He's going to hang on a cross. But not everything is as it appears. The facts are not always truth. The truth is that Jesus is in control every step of the way. The truth is that while they're plotting against him, Jesus is exposing them. The truth is that while they nail him to the cross, he's going to hang there and die accomplishing the purposes of God for salvation. He will die for your sin. He will die for my sin on that cross. That will put him in the ground and allow him to have that moment, that glorious moment, three days later, early in the morning when Jesus wakes up from the dead. And if he arises, we arise with him. Who can bring a charge against the elect? Who can bring a charge against the elect? Hey, before we go too quick, 
we could say, well, the factual answer is a whole lot of people. Right? I mean, let's think about the facts of your life. Let's just, let's just talk about them. Anybody want to offer yourself? We could have you come up front and just tell us all of your dirt, all the facts of your life, how you are an imperfect person, how you are an imperfect person. We could talk about your sin. We could talk about your guilt that has brought charges against you. We could talk about God's wrath for sin, the mess that you've made of your life. Oh, and by the way, you're going to die. It just got real quiet in the room. (laughs) You do realize that's because of sin. That is the curse of sin. These are the facts. And these are the things that the authorities, the false authorities of our world will bring against us. And if we had no truth, if we had no one leading us in a straight way, if we had no one who was an authority, not just simply enough to tell us what to do, but to die for us in our place, then we would be left merely with the facts. But we have truth. We have Jesus. He is our authority. And the truth is this. Jesus is righteous. Jesus died for your guilt. Jesus took God's wrath for your sin. And Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing over death and the grave. If Jesus triumphs, those who are in him triumph. So who can bring any charge against the elect? If they couldn't trip him up, and if we are in him, are you following my logic here? If we're in Christ, then they can't trip, trip us up. If they could not bring any charge against Christ, and I find my identity not in myself, but in Christ, well, church, they can't bring any charge against me because I'm in Him, because I am His, and He is mine. The world comes with trouble, but my Lord said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The world brings hardships. And the Bible says all things work together for good to them who are in Christ. The world brings persecution. But they could find no fault in Him. The world brings famine. But He gives nourishment beyond the body. The world brings nakedness, but He brings clothing for the righteous. The world brings danger all around us. But what can man do to me? The world brings a sword, but three days later he rose from the dead. So who can bring any charge against the elect? Here's what it says. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We have Christ. And Christ triumphed. And so do we. Amen? Father, we thank you that we have victory in Jesus. We thank you that he is our 
true authority. I pray, God, that every man, woman, and child in this room will embrace Christ as their authority, will follow Him and find their identity in Him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.